0: Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. I hope you had a chance to listen to our conversation about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's record and the confirmation fight that lies ahead. Of course, at that point, we were still speculating about who the nominee would be. Now we have our answer. Judge Amy Coney Barrett was nominated in the Rose Garden at what we now understand to be a super-spreader event where several of the White House staff, GOP senators, and even the president himself appear to have been infected with COVID-19. LGBT legal groups right out of the gate, including the LGBT Bar Association of New York, strongly opposed this dangerous and ideologically driven selection. It is clear that Judge Amy Coney Barrett's history of hostility to the equal dignity of LGBT people reveals that she will use her judicial pen to strip away the hard-fought victories that we've achieved up until now and to thwart all future progress for generations to come. This threat is not hypothetical. In 2015, we were fighting for marriage equality and Judge Coney Barrett joined a letter where she publicly avowed views about marriage and family founded on the insoluble commitment of a man and a woman. She has been a guest speaker at the request of the anti-LGBT hate group Alliance Defending Freedom. She has written that a judge does not have to follow precedent if she thinks it was wrongly decided. And as we prepare to persuade the justices of the Supreme Court that LGBT families deserve to be treated fairly by adoption agencies seeking the right to discriminate, Judge Coney Barrett's writings reveal that she will use the First Amendment to blow a massive hole in our nation's non discrimination laws. That is why I'm so excited about today's episode. We are going to be talking with Chris Kang. Chris is the co-founder and chief counsel of Demand Justice. He served in the White House for nearly seven years as deputy counsel to President Obama and special assistant to the President for Legislative Affairs. Chris oversaw the selection, vetting, and confirmation of more than 220 of the president's judicial nominees and spearheaded the confirmation of Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. Of course, we're going to talk today about the fight ahead, Justice Coney Barrett's record, and what we look forward to if we have a Biden administration and a Democratic Senate in terms of reforms to the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts. It's an interesting conversation and I can't wait to get started. Hi, Chris. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about um, what's at stake for the Supreme Court, about Demand Justice's work, about Amy Coney Barrett's record, and about what the fight is going to look like um, over the next couple of weeks and going forward. Um, So let's get right into it. I received my email from Hillary Clinton asking that I donate to demand justice. I've seen your advertisements. Can you talk to me a little bit about the organization and why it's such an important uh, progressive group to be having fighting for fairness in the courts.
1: Yeah, so first of all, I hope you followed Secretary Clinton's advice and donated to Demand Justice. Uh, if folks are not familiar with us, they should check us out at demandjustice.org, or Twitter is at We Demand Justice. But this is an organization that Brian Fallon and I started in 2018, because if we're being honest, conservatives have had a decades-long head start on us as progressives on mobilizing and activating and understanding the political consequences of the courts. And so we felt like it was necessary for progressives to get in the game, to understand what's at risk and how the courts and particularly Donald Trump's takeover of our courts is really gonna affect the way we live our lives for the next 30 or 40 years.
0: It's so true, and we already saw the heavy spending from uh, the Republican side to confirm, well, to steal Scalia's seat and then to confirm Justice Kavanaugh. So this is really important that Democrats and progressives get in the game and show people that we have a vision for what the courts need to be doing in elevating this issue in our discourse.
1: Absolutely, and look, we're never gonna match Republicans dollar for dollar, uh, but we never do as a progressive movement, and that's not where we find our strength. We find our strength in the people, we find our strength in people calling their senators, taking to the streets, showing up in a democratic, small D democratic way and fighting for what we believe in. And I think that the important thing that more and more Democrats are realizing is that every single issue we care about lives and dies by the courts. So whether it's access to healthcare or LGBTQ equality or access to abortion or climate change or gun violence prevention, literally everything is on the line in the courts. And so we have to understand that the theory of change is not just a democratic Congress that can pass laws or a democratic president that can take executive action, but really what does the court look like at the end of the day when all of these different policies are going to be challenged?
0: It's true. And I'm wondering because we have such a legal wonky listener uh, base on this uh, podcast, if you can get us into the weeds a little bit about what's really at stake. I mean, this was the first um, SCOTUS uh, oral argument, the the court is back um, doing work uh, for this term. We already saw an attack from Thomas and uh, Alito against marriage equality. Um, that really is, is quite chilling. So can you talk to us about specifically what legislation and constitutional values we're looking to see erode if we have a 6-3 uh, majority on the court for the s- foreseeable future?
1: Yes, yeah, so, so the short answer is everything. You're right. I, I, think, I think like there was a CNN like analysis headline that says if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed, it'll be the most conservative court since the 1930s. Uh, and it is, it really is. And I think some people say, oh, you're being alarmist. But that that Thomas and Alito uh, opinion today shows that we're not being alarmist, that even things like Obergefell are on the line. Um, certainly people understand that Roe versus Wade will be gutted if not flat overturned. Um, but then look, we have the, another challenge to the Affordable Care Act is gonna be heard the week after the election. This is a law that's been in place for a decade and Republicans are still coming back with more and more disingenuous arguments. And now even Republican lawyers are saying, well, this one's beyond the pale, don't worry, it'll never, it'll never be upheld. And yet, a Republican district court judge did strike down the ACA. And two Fifth Circuit judges, including one appointed by Trump, was the deciding vote to say that that was right and that the case needed to be continued. So like, we know that at least several of these Republican appointed justices on the Supreme Court are going to find some excuse to strike down the ACA. Whether Amy Coney Barrett is the fifth vote, I think, will technically be seen, but she has shown that she has been. She agrees with the dissenters in both of the previous attacks to the ACA, um, and then everything is on the line. I think we're going from a, a Supreme Court term where John, where John Roberts was sort of the decision maker in everything, to being irrelevant. Right? If John Roberts is, uh, if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed then John Roberts' opinion's gonna be uh, irrelevant. And the swing vote, the swing vote is gonna be Brett Kavanaugh. And if that's not enough to terrify everybody, I don't know what is.
0: Can you, what about voting rights? Uh, I mean, we've, we've seen as soon as, uh, you know, preclearance went out the window, we've seen all of these voting restrictions. What does the future of, of protecting the right to vote look like under a 6-3 Republican majority?
1: So I think that there's a really important thread to pull on, because in particular, after this last Supreme Court term, some analysts were saying, look, John Roberts is an institutionalist. He's not as bad as everybody thought he'd be. He voted the right way in the Louisiana abortion case. So he's, he's fine, if not a moderate, if not like upholding some values. Everything that happened in the summer, then that came right afterwards, right? Like in time after time, whether it was Wisconsin or Florida or Texas or Alabama, these are five, four decisions where the court has an opportunity, especially in this pandemic, to rule to expand voting rights or to restrict them. And time after time, the Republican justices rule in favor of the Republican Party. And it's the pattern that we've seen from Citizens United to Shelby County versus Holder. The partisan gerrymandering, keep off the voter rolls. Like this is an anti-democracy Supreme Court. And they've just agreed to hear another case that could gut the voting rights even further this term. So I think that, that we really have to think critically about what not just the 6-3 majority would do, but really what this 5-4 majority already has been doing. That's
0: right. Well, let's get into Amy Coney Barrett a little bit. Can we talk about you know, our organization Lambda Legal, NCLR, all the major LGBT organizations are opposing Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation because of her record attacking LGBT people. But obviously she's got views that are quite extreme about applying her religious views, her personal religious views on, uh, in judicial opinions. Um, so what is at stake for women, people of color communities, religious minorities, LGBT people if Amy Coney Barrett um, is confirmed. What does her record tell us?
1: So she has a very extreme record. Uh, and you're right, the LGBTQ organizations um, have been there since 2017, fighting her nomination because of her extreme record, because she sort of accepted an honorarium to speak at the Alliance Defending Freedom. I don't know if that's the made up name that ADF stands for, but. A hate group. Um, a, right, a hate group that sort of is very clearly uh, opposed to. to Gay people. Period. More lives, rights for them. Um, but I think, like, she has a very demonstrated um, record of hostility to justice and equality. She openly says that her her mentor is Antonin Scalia, who she who she clerked for. She has a very regressive record. So she's on the she's on the record twice, saying that she would strike. She would have voted the other way in the Affordable Care Act. She's, on the, she's voted against immigrant rights in allowing Trump to proceed with his public charge rule, which is essentially a wealth, tax, a wealth test for immigrants. She's voted the wrong way on abortion restrictions. She's voted the wrong way on employment discrimination. Sort of time and time again, she, when given an opportunity, she's on the wrong side of justice and equality. And that just sort of shows that she really fits this Donald Trump mold of the, the litmus test and the kind of judge that he wants to put forward.
0: Do you think that we we think judgment is paramount for a judge? It's in the title. Do you think that her involvement in the super spreader event that's becoming increasingly uh, referred to that way shows some kind of lack, you know, shed some uh, uh, light on her ability to show judgment um, and to understand the health risks? How would she be deciding the ACA if she has a cavalier uh, attitude about uh, COVID and the dangers, uh, that people face from, from contracting this disease.
1: Yeah, so I think that there's no question that, that, that showed, uh, poor judgment at best, and sort of you want your judges to have, uh, have good judgment, as you say, but, but I also think it goes a step further than that, right? Like, it shows that she's not really listening to science and facts, and sort of the way that she interprets things is really troubling that she would think, like, an event like this Um, where nobody's wearing masks, where people aren't social distancing, where the science on both of those things is very clear to prevent the spread of the pandemic we're in. Like, if that's the way she treats this science, how is she going to treat science related to climate change? How Mm -hmm. is she going to treat facts in front of her in a court? And also, like, the big thing you want, like, when when we learned about the three branches of government, we learned about checks and balances and independence. And if she's not able to show independence and stand up to Donald Trump, and wear a mask herself, she has that sort of capacity to put a mask on and going on, even if she's not gonna mandate everybody else to wear one. If she can't stand up to Donald Trump in that simple way, how is she gonna stand up to Donald Trump when the election related cases come on the line? And he said at the debate last week, he wants her in place so that the Supreme Court can quote unquote, look at the ballots, right? Like there's all of these different things that go beyond the literal lack of judgment she has that I think are very troubling for how she would perform as a justice.
0: All right, you mentioned standing up to Donald Trump. Uh, My question next is about standing up to Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham what do Democrats, what tools do they have in their tool belt to be able to delay this confirmation hearing, maybe stop Amy Coney Barrett? I mean, I know a lot of people thought this was a foregone conclusion that she'd be confirmed, but even in these past couple of days, the narrative, the calculus has changed somewhat because of the COVID infections in the GOP. And so it's we have to fight with everything that we have because we don't know what tomorrow brings. So what are some of the tools that we have in order to, to bring that fight?
1: So, uh, so the bad news is that we don't have that many tools, right? We don't have that many procedural tools to be able to actually stop Republicans. Right? If Lindsey Graham wants to move forward with his hearing next week, it's within his power and he's able to, and there's nothing that Democrats do to stop him. Similarly, if Mitch McConnell barrels forward and tries to have a vote, um, there's some limited procedural tactics that Democrats can take and we would expect them to take to sort of throw some sand in the gears and slow this down a little bit. Uh, But McConnell knows what most of those are and he's preparing the calendar so that he can account for them, so that he can still push this vote through before the election, notwithstanding anything that Democrats throw at him. Um, That said, one, Democratic senators need to throw everything they can because you never know what's gonna happen. But more importantly, uh, just because Democrats procedurally can't stop them doesn't mean that politically we can't stop them. And like for me, the the best parallel to all of this is the Affordable Care Act, right? Republicans had the votes to strike down the Affordable Care Act. And it was because people sort of stood up And they told their stories. They wrote their congressmen. They called their senators. They participated in town halls. They rose up in a way that our elected leaders were not expecting. And it was that pressure that led to the Affordable Care Act being preserved. It wasn't Democratic senators on their own who did it because they couldn't. And it's that sort of mentality, that fighting mentality that we have to have, that we can't give up. We can't give up because as you noted, um, several of these senators aren't even going to be live at the hearing anymore. Um, Well, they shouldn't be. We'll see if they are um, because they either have contracted COVID or have been exposed to somebody who has. Um, So we have to fight. We have to fight every single step of the way. And I think that the other challenge for us now is that so many people are volunteering to get out the vote or otherwise with this election which is incredibly important but we have to not lose focus on the supreme court fight as well because i also think that the more republican senators understand that their jobs are in danger based on their barreling forward um the more likely they're going to be to even pause and i think maybe maybe i shouldn't take this vote right before four days before the election itself maybe that'll backlash. I should ask McConnell to push it past the election. And I do think like, look, what we're asking is for, we're asking for no confirmation until inauguration, but we have to do this step by step. And the first step is to push this past the election. If we push it past the election and there's a landslide election that many of us hope there may be, that resets the calculus altogether. And so what we really need now is to build the pressure and make sure people understand that they're gonna be held accountable for their their votes and how they proceed with this, um, increasingly not only sham process, but now it's an outright dangerous one. All
0: right, so the last question that I have for you, and it's the most important in, in terms of uh, the way that I view this issue, and, and I'm certainly really uh, interested to hear what you think about, about this issue, but let's say that you know the Senate is key in this calculation, but if under a Biden administration, if the Democrats control the Senate, what is the approach to judges? What is the approach to maybe court reform What is the approach to uh, the way that Biden prioritizes uh, uh, maybe adding federal court seats to the lower courts or uh, progressive judges and getting them through? Do things go back to business as usual with reinstituting all of those procedural norms that once existed that the Republicans got rid of? What can we expect Democrats to do going forward to make sure that we're playing hardball as well when it comes to judges?
1: So I think that we've already started to see mindset uh, shift amongst Democratic leaders and amongst Joe Biden. And you can just look at the Democratic National Platform, uh, Committee platform that was ratified this summer. You know, in 2016, it was barely lip service. That There's a paragraph on judges. And now in 2020, there's a provision that says that, that Republicans are packing the courts with ideological extremists who vote for corporations and the wealthy Republican Party that republicans have stolen the seat on the supreme court and blocked lower court nominees and that, re- that democrats need to pursue structural reforms to the court and on top of that there's a whole provision in the platform now that calls for lower courts to be expanded um, to add at least 70 seats as recommended by john roberts and the judicial conference to improve the administration of justice and so it's against that backdrop and even like poll after poll earlier this month showed that more Democrats than Republicans think that the Supreme Court is a very important issue. The politics of all this has been shifting, and now it's just gonna take off even more. And so now if Republicans really blow through, I didn't even think there was another norm that they could blow through, but apparently they've managed to find another here, um, including the fact that they're gonna have a hearing just 16 days after nomination. We've not had a hearing for any federal judge this quickly in 20 years. Uh, and they're making that exception for the Supreme Court. Now Democrats have to think like, what is the response? What does the response have to be beyond the lower court expansion they've already been talking about, beyond prioritizing judges, beyond getting better, more progressive judges, like civil rights lawyers and public defenders, public interest lawyers, what is the next step? And I think really the question here is is gonna be around court reform. And I will say this, like Chuck Schumer has said nothing is off the table, Joe Biden refuses to take adding seats off the table. Those are important indicators. They're not on board yet, and and I don't think they need to be, but this is the conversation. If somebody's going to, if the Republicans are going to steal two seats in four years, there has to be some sort of response to restore legitimacy and balance to the court. And so I think that once this, this nomination is rammed through, if it is, um, and I don't, I don't give that as a as a given, and I think we'll keep fighting back, but if it is, I think it will be in this environment such that adding seats to the Supreme Court will no longer be really a fringe argument. It will be a necessity to save our democracy.
0: So what do you call on people to do so that they can lend support to demand justice so that we build the progressives movement? around that will allow Schumer and Biden to feel like there's public support for doing these important court reforms? Do you have some kind of call to action? Um, be, I mean, obviously in the short term, get involved with the Amy Coney Barrett fight and fight, fight, fight. And then what's, what's the call? How, how should we engage?
1: So it is the short term really is like calling your senators and fight, fight, fight and call them every day. Because here's the thing, like these Democratic senators are all gonna vote no on her nomination, that's a given. But if they don't hear from enough people because we all know they're gonna vote no, they're not gonna fight as hard as they otherwise could. So we need to be lighting up the phones for Democratic senators as well as Republicans, sort of your own senators, obviously not anybody else's. But but I think sometimes we take that for granted that we have, if you're in a state with Democratic senators and they've announced that they're gonna vote no or they've announced they're not gonna take a courtesy meeting, that they're fine and they don't need to hear from you. And they absolutely do they need to hear from you every day they need to hear from your friends every day and then they need to hear from you that if republicans ram this nomination through you want to know what their plan is going to be to save the supreme court what is it that they're going to do next you can push for for adding seats yourself and there are a lot of good resources to learn more about why adding seats is sort of the right thing to do it's something that even eric holder has come out for now uh there was an article in the atlantic by the editors of Lawfare who are sort of more like, we're moving more and more to the middle of the sort of center left people who think that the court should be expanded. Um, but really like, I think what we have to do is we have to get democratic senators and democratic leaders to admit that the court is broken. I think the court's been broken. You know, We've called it demand justice, we've called for Supreme Court reform for two years now, um, but people need to recognize that the court is broken. And then if they admit that, if they acknowledge that, then what is their solution? Their solution, to me, again, it's only logical that we have to add seats now to balance out this theft and to restore legitimacy to the court, right? The Supreme Court's had a majority of Republicans for the last 50 years, even though Democrats have won six out of the last seven presidential elections by popular vote, right? We're at the point now where a majority of the court will have been appointed by a president that lost the popular vote. The legitimacy of the court is on the line and Democrats need to have a solution. So I understand there may be some skepticism, there may be some unwillingness to embrace court reform um, in the in the name of adding seats. Okay, then what's your solution? I think like we have to push people to have that conversation. Um, and I really do think the more we talk about it, the more we push it forward, the more it really becomes the logical and only possible response in this moment.
0: Chris, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's so exciting to hear that there's an organization that's also helping us channel the outrage and, and power that we want to have, to have a voice in this fight, to make sure that the senators are hearing us and to give us action steps to create that real change. And I feel like it's within our grasp. Finally, I felt hopeless for so long. And I think hopefully we can really get there in the next couple of months, even though it's going to be an all-out all uh, fight until then. Um, every single day so we won't let up but we're glad to be fighting alongside you
1: yeah same here i really appreciate all the work you're doing and the chance to come in and, and chat with you
0: yeah all right thanks so much chris yeah thanks and thank you so much for listening We are going to have some great content coming your way as we continue to follow Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and what her record is revealing during the judiciary hearings, assuming that they move forward. We're gonna talk more about the lower courts and of course the Supreme Court, including the recent opinion by Thomas and Alito, where they reference that Obergefell and marriage equality nationally should be overturned. So we've got some great things heading your way. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on iTunes, on legal.ponbean.com, and now we're up on Spotify. So make sure you like us, give us reviews, uh, and refer your friends. Thank you, and we'll be back
1: soon.